Where did the U.S. Army in Vietnam expand their operations in 1967 and 1968? What really happened during the Tet Offensive? And was it a tactical and strategic success or failure for the Army? And how did the Army respond to the My Lai Massacre? For these answers and more insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army's Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the United States Army Center of Military History. This is the third episode of a five-part series on the Vietnam War, where we are discussing the Army activities in Vietnam during the pivotal years of 1967 to 1968. Joining me to continue leading us through this discussion is Vietnam War historian Dr. Eric B. Villard. Welcome back, Eric, and thanks for joining me for what I'm sure will be another fascinating discussion. Thank you. Great to be here. And just to remind our listeners that Dr. Villard is the digital military historian for the U.S. Army Center of Military History and one of the Army's leading Vietnam War historians. He wrote a volume in one of the U.S. Combat Operations in the Vietnam War series titled Staying the Course, October 1967 to September 1968. That was published in December of 2017. And just coincidentally, that happens to be our topic of discussion today. And he's currently working on the next book in that series, covering October 1968 to December 1969. And outside of CMH, Dr. Villard is the founder of the Vietnam War History Foundation, a nonprofit organization that has over 44,000 members on its Facebook group. Very impressive. He also has appeared as a historical advisor and analyst on many documentary projects, including to Ken Burns and Lynn Novick for their Vietnam War documentary series. So, uh, Eric, anything I, I'm missing that uh, is worthy of note? Uh, anything Vietnam War uh, is going to have my attention. I, I've got some uh, projects coming up, some documentaries that uh, will be coming out in the next few years, so keep your eyes peeled. And uh, I've been doing a lot of podcasts, and i got to say, just so great to be able to talk to everyone about the Vietnam War. Yeah, I, this is a fascinating subject, and we, we want to make sure that you know we're covering it in as much detail as we can, and that's why we're dedicating you know, five episodes to this uh, for our podcast, and I'm sure we'll revisit Vietnam to cover more in-depth information on certain battles or key leaders later on in future podcasts. But now let's transition back to um, uh, the 1967 so um, let's set the table for, uh, for the listeners. Where are we going into 1967? So going into 1967, uh, the American military presence in South Vietnam, again, is uh, headed you know, up to and past 400,000. Uh, and this is mostly Army, but again, Navy, Air Force, even some Coast Guard, Marines, General William Westmoreland is the overall commander of, of this uh, force, and so he's been in the job for a few years now. 
67 for him is going to be the year where he can really bring American combat power to bear in a big way. This is, as some people have said, the year of taking the offensive, the year that we have enough logistical capacity, enough combat troops to finally really go on the offense and try to push back against the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong threat. So can you describe what was Westmoreland's uh, strategic intentions or his plans? So being the MACV commander, and again, that means he is not in control of the South Vietnamese government or its military. He's an advisor. His American advisors are helping the South Vietnamese at all echelons, but he has to be respectful of their needs. And so he's there to help build the South Vietnamese. He also has a relationship with some of our allies who are fighting alongside of us. So the South Koreans, for example, have committed by this point about 50,000 troops. Oh, that's a significant it's number. It's a very yeah. significant number. Again, we came to South Korea's aid uh, during the Korean War, and this is uh, you know part of our new relationship with South Korea. They're going to help uh, contribute troops. Now, we don't tell the South Koreans what to do, but we basically suggest, mm -hmm. and they generally say, all right, that sounds good. So the Australians and New Zealanders have their area uh, of operation. The Thais have sent a brigade. So there are yeah. some of our free world allies who are, who are fighting alongside of us. But Westmoreland's big goal for 67 is to really start chewing away at these remote enemy base areas. As I said before, most of the people in South Vietnam live in the lowlands near the coast where you can grow rice. But a lot of the country in the interior, mountains and jungles, very in inhospitable places, that's where the VC and North Vietnamese like to have their secret camps. Mm -hmm. So Westmoreland, being a smart guy that he is, knows that you can't simply win the war by killing you know, enough VC or NVA. It's more sophisticated. You have to go after those bases because all the supplies they're getting, or at least most of it, is being carried carried laboriously down the Ho Chi Minh Trail from North Vietnam. So every time you find a hidden supply cache, you take away that rice, you take away that guns, that makes the enemy less uh, capable. So this is going to be 67, going into these big, forbidding jungle areas throughout the country and really starting to clear them out. That's the big priority. So what were the big battles that we encountered? Uh, I think like uh, we had Operation Cedar Falls. Right. So, so early on, for example, yeah. in, mm -hmm. in, in the three-core area, which is the area around Saigon, uh, north of Saigon, you have some of these, again, really forbidding areas. One of the areas that had always been particularly troublesome, and it's just a few dozen kilometers from Saigon, is a place called the Iron Triangle. It's this, it's sort of a, a diamond or triangle-shaped area of jungle uh, that is close enough to the city to pose a real threat. Now, the thing that's really uh, confounding about it is the Viet Cong had spent decades building tunnels mm. beneath this jungle. Is this Kuchi? This is like, around, yeah, tunnels of Kuchi mm -hmm. and that whole area around the Saigon River. So... One of Westmoreland's first priorities is to clear that place out. So Operation December 67, Operation Cedar Falls, um, sends in 
American forces from multiple directions to clear this place out. So the Viet Cong, seeing all this tremendous strength, essentially try to hide. And so they go under these tunnels, and they— it's very difficult to find them. So what do the Americans do? A lot of things. Uh, they use these big bulldozers called Rome plows to actually scrape away the trees and the jungles and knock those down to create roads into open landing zones. So they're doing that. They're spraying Agent Orange, mm. oh, wow. which is herbicide, which yeah. is to, to kill the foliage mm-hmm. so you expose the bunkers that are hidden underneath. Right. Um, they're using dogs mm. uh, to s- try to sniff out the Vietnamese who are hiding underground. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do find one of these tunnels, and again, some often very, very hard to find, it was an American volunteer soldier nicknamed Tunnel Rats, mm-hmm. usually a smaller guy because these are not large tunnels, who would go down there with a 45 or 38 <laughs> and a flashlight to see what was down there. That took real courage. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because oh, wow. you know that there's bad guys down there, and as some of these tunnel rats discovered, more than bad guys. Um, in some cases, they had uh, these little tunnel dead ends mm. that would go under water, but there's no way through the other side. Oh, wow. Or there's some places where they have snakes or scorpions or mm. spiders or things, mm. you know. So, And explosives, too. I and explosives, right? booby traps, mm-hmm. if you didn't know the right way. And, of right. course, Viet Cong down there. And some of these tunnels were so elaborate that they had three or four levels. Mm. They had whole operating facilities, printing mm. presses. So It looked um, like little towns, little... Absolutely, and some of these date again dated back to World War II. So they'd been doing this a long time. Mm -hmm. So this is this is one of the you know Cedar Falls big operations. They never do entirely clear out the Iron Triangle tunnels, Mm -hmm. but they do neutralize some of them. I mean, later on, the Army came up with some very interesting uh, ideas to 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 find these hidden tunnels. Uh, My favorite is they uh, used bed bugs. And, and hooked them up to uh, microphones. The oh, idea wow. is bed bugs smell, I guess, your carbon dioxide, but they, they, they uh, the proximity of humans, and they, and they start to squeal. So by amplifying their little squeals, the idea is that you, 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 you stick this little wand of bed bugs out there, and you're, you're looking for the— That is fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, that's—Army's that's, that's it, Army's always trying— <laughs> I, I had never heard or read that right. before. That's or incredible. they use like the Mighty Might, which is like a big old leaf blower. And so you just pump, you know, mm. tear gas down there oh, or okay. something, you know. So mm. anyway, it, it was an ongoing problem. But this is what they're doing in early 67, going to some of these really, really And uh, how long did Cedar Falls uh, Well, last? Cedar Falls, uh, I mean, the actual operation lasted, you know, about a month. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it was never entirely neutralized. I mean, the enemy still functioned there, but um, it was certainly less of a problem. And in some cases, what they did was they relocated whole hamlets because we, uh, I mean, the Vietnamese States. who were living there. Okay, they right. really located right. Vietnamese hamlets. Yeah, Vietnamese hamlets because um, you know the Viet Cong would rely on local labor, right? Um, they look on people for taxation, for food, for information, for whatever. So even if these, you know, villages or these hamlet goers 
however they felt about the communists, maybe they supported them, maybe they did. The fact is, if as long as they are there, they're going to help the enemy. So in some cases, they relocated entire hamlets. Now, you can imagine that's very upsetting to, to the people yeah, who live so. there. Right. 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 And, and the places where they went to were not always great, but this is these were part of the ideas used to try to chip away at VC support. And did support. that feed into you know, the uh, North Vietnamese, Viet Cong Well, the communists, of course, made you know, a lot of hay mm-hmm. about that, yeah. you know, that, that, that this was again, um, you know, a sort of you know, crime against the Vietnamese people. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's hard to tell of all the people they relocated, how many of them again actually were like, you know, phew, I'm glad I'm out of there. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's safer here. And how many of them like, well, gosh, you know, my brother is actually the local VC district chief. Yeah. I, you know, hard to say, but it was, I mean, at this point, the war is increasing in such ferocity that it is actually affecting a lot of the people in the countryside who probably just wish they'd be left alone. Yeah. And then, uh, so this is Operation Seed of Falls, but yeah. then we also have Operation Junction City going right. on. which is an even bigger one. And that's up towards the uh, Cambodian border, this big, massive wilderness called War Zone C, or that we called War Zone C. Mm-hmm. And again, converging from multiple directions. Uh, it's notable... F- among other things, for being the only major combat parachute jump of the war. And who did that? Which 173rd Airborne okay. Brigade. Uh, basically a battalion jump um, close to the border. It wasn't that they had to do it. I mean, there were other ways to get there. But but part of Westmoreland's um, motivation was he wanted to put the communists on notice that if the time came that he got the authority, to, for example, to go into Cambodia where a lot of these Viet Cong bases were, he could also do it with parachute okay. troops. So that was the idea of, mm. of that combat jump. Oh, interesting. And then what was the purpose of, of the mission? Again, War Zone Z, massive area with all these hidden supply um, caches, um, enemy infiltration routes. It's a it's it's you know it's huge huge piece of real estate, but the idea is to g- go in there and try to find them and destroy them because, as I said before, killing the enemy is only one among many ways to achieve victory. Mm-hmm. You can take away his food, you can take away his medicine, you can take away his ammunition, you can try to convince him to defect. That was a big part of oh. the war, a psychological operation. Right. So there's a lot of ways that mm-hmm. you can achieve your objective. How long did it last, and what was the result? That of it? was again. That was an operation that you know lasted you know five or six weeks. Um, you know while it was going, and again they they're they're doing this in January and February because in 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 South Vietnam they are under the influence of uh, monsoon weather. So for half of the year, you know, from like October to April in that area. It's pretty dry because of the mm. monsoon winds. Okay. So right. these places are pretty dry, and you can actually put tanks and mm. vehicles mm-hmm. out there and operate. Now, when the rains come for the rest of the year, those places are much harder to operate in. So this is why they're doing it at that point. And again, you need American equipment. You need the big bulldozers. You need to be able to have uh, not just Hueys, but even bigger helicopters like the CH-47 Chinooks, which we are still using. Oh, yes. Yeah, Some of those absolutely. airframes, yeah. are, we are yeah. still in service. <laughs> so, uh, again, it, it's because of these uh, advantages that we could operate 
over such distances. And then just talk a little bit about the tactics on the ground. Was it search and destroy, cordon and search? Yeah. Uh, how, how, what were they in, doing? In this, in, this, in this particular case, when you only have a vague notion mm-hmm. where the enemy is, um, and, and it, it could be, for example, they might use uh, a plane flying overhead with infrared sensors. Mm. And the infrared sensors detect the campfires of okay. an enemy camp, right. right? That's one way. Or they, again, have an informant who mm-hmm. says, hey, look here. Or you have... The LERPs? The LERPs, who actually go in, have eyes on, or air cavalry squadrons. Um, U.S. commanders could never get enough air cavalry squadrons. So these are... Um, dedicated units based on helicopters, both the Huey gunships and um, a smaller aircraft. We use a Descendant today, OH-58, OH-600. It's a Cayuse. It's it's a two-person fast helicopter. So you're zipping around the terrain actually looking for signs of the enemy. And Mm -hmm. so by all these different techniques – once you get a fix, then you, you sort of pile on. But if you're on the ground as an infantry, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a daunting prospect because this part of the country, triple canopy jungle, mm-hmm. there are places where you do not see the light of day. Yeah, mm-hmm. It is so thick, and you can only see, you know, a few feet in front of you. So you need that human intelligence. You need human intelligence. Um, you also need to make sure that, you you know, where everyone else is. Mm-hmm. So you're not shooting... Yes, your own people, right. and also think about the U.S. air power. Mm-hmm. Great to have, but if your own airplanes don't know where you are, right. that's a problem. So M16s, this is actually one of the areas where there was some criticism, mm. right? So the M16 rifle that came into service, the first year of operation, they realized it had some issues. One of it was the fact it would jam. Okay. Because the powder they used was kind of, w- wasn't very clean, and the soldiers weren't doing a really good job Mm-hmm. cleaning their weapons. Also, the spring was too tight. Mm. So the 21 magazine, you could only put 18 bullets in there. Oh, wow. If you put more than that, it would jam. Mm-hmm. So they did come up with, with, with um, you know, improved versions, but it shot a light bullet, a 5.56 mm-hmm. bullet. Like it's a 22 caliber. Yeah. And some of the soldiers complained that in all the foliage, oh. you know what I'm saying, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the actual banana leaves, mm-hmm would kind of make the bullets go sideways, right? Wow. Now, some of the, um, I mean, the American machine gunners are using heavier weapons, but the enemy's using heavier mm-hmm. bullets. Yeah, and they're using primarily what, the enemies? Uh, AK or AK version type, usually made in China, actually, but, oh. it, but it's a 7.62. Okay. It's like a 30 caliber bullet. Mm-hmm. It's heavier. And our M60 was a 7.2. It was a 7.6, exactly. Yeah. And that could... That could do a whole lot of damage, mm-hmm. and that could punch through. Right, but there was, you know, again, in certain environments, some of the some of the soldiers were like, "Gosh, I really wish I had my M14." Wow. Well, and oh, really? So they preferred that, but uh, in, by in this cases, time, with the M14s gone from the they army were inventory? they were disappearing. Some snipers mm-hmm. uh, still used them. Um, a few I think Marines s- used them too. Marines, didn't they? Uh, yeah, they got their M16s a little later. Okay. Um, all, all in all, though, uh, especially once they fixed some of the M16 main problems, I would say if you did a survey, I think the vast majority of the troops actually said, yeah, the M16 is a better weapon. Mm. 
Uh, it's lighter, carry more ammo. If you clean it properly, it's mm. it, it works just fine. And the the M4 we have today is a descendant. Oh yeah, of course. Of the yeah. M16, it is right. So yeah, and then um, well, since we're talking about some weapons, we've talked about the M16, the M60 yeah. machine gun. Uh, but then they also had uh, grenade launchers, the M79. Yeah, the M79, which is, uh, they call the bloop gun. Mm-hmm. And it looks like a, it's like a sawed-off shotgun. Yeah. And it fired a single 40-millimeter grenade round. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you, probably a lot of you, seen the movie Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. that, that that famous scene by the by the bridge later on, and there's someone out there screaming in the jungle, and this this one guy, he's got an M79, and he just kind of angles it up, <laughs> boop, and gets oh. them. Uh, it could fire buckshot, it could fire illumination, mm-hmm. it could fire white phosphor. It's a very versatile right. weapon, but what ended up happening in Vietnam is they ended up going to a underslung grenade launcher beneath the M16. So when, oh, so that happened during so the M203, the right. They began experiment and that has now kind of become right. the standard. But mm-hmm. they back then the M79 definitely had its had its place mm-hmm. um in you know in in the arsenal. I mean of course bigger equipment. I mean you had 50 caliber machine guns going back to World War 1. We're still using those. Yeah. I mean sometimes when you get something right it works forever. Check. Uh M48 tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, the patents, um, again, turned out to be very, very effective. M113 armored personnel carriers um, could actually bust through jungle. Oh, wow. So um, you had to be worried about the fire ants. Yeah. Right? Because you're going through the jungle and you hit a nest of wasps or fire ants mm. and suddenly <laughs> they're inside the, they're inside oh, the wow. compartment. Wow. So usually you'll see the big cans of bug spray on these vehicles <laughs> when you see them. Oh, amazing. And then uh, what about the artillery at the time? How effective was the artillery? And- artillery, uh, again, it was updated versions, you know, World War II equipment, but the 105 millimeter howitzer was- M101, I think was, it was. Yeah, yeah, the M101 was a standard. Uh, basically, every infantry battalion had uh, this, you know, you know, battery mm-hmm. in direct support. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had, at higher echelons, bigger mm-hmm. weapons like the 155 howitzer. Right. right, usually under brigade, division, corps support, up to the really big boys like the eight inch right. and the uh, the uh, two hundred and three millimeter uh, cannon, which could you know range out to seventeen, eighteen miles. Yeah. And then units had uh, mortars, whether it was a they 60 had mortars, sixty millimeter, eighty one, and then the four deuce, the four deuce, the, the uh, which is like a, about a hundred twenty millimeter. Mm-hmm. It started out as Mainly being used for chemical, you know, for 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 sending smoke, but it okay. but they also has a warhead. Now it's mm-hmm. way too heavy for, yeah, that was infantry to carry. But right. in a rear area, mm-hmm. um, and then you had some other exotic weapons. You had recoilless rifles, okay, of various. And who would use those? Um, d- depending, usually the heavy weapons company or platoon. Mm-hmm. And if you thought you needed it, because it, it's kind of heavy. Usually, what they put it, they put it on a jeep or something, okay. or, or leave right. it back at base, or some uh, like they're the the quad fifties. Oh, wow. Every Vietnam buyer will tell you about it. These are four fifty caliber machine guns designed to be an anti aircraft weapon. But in Vietnam, 
use them for base defense. Okay. Oh yeah, makes sense. Yeah. You know, well, let's um, we'll we'll talk more about maybe in the, in the, in the next um, episode a little bit more about um, other branches right. that we've got there. Right. But because I, I really want to get into uh, talk about the Tet Offensive. Yeah. But uh, the lead up to the Tet Offensive. So let's talk a little bit about that. How? Yeah. Uh, I guess from both the enemy right. and, and the American from army. From both sides. Yeah. So again, as uh, as I said in 67, you know, the war is expanding in intensity. Uh, more American troops are coming in. The enemy is pouring in more troops. The U.S. Uh, scope of activity is growing. By mid-67, there there is now parts of the 9th Infantry Division in the Mekong Delta mm-hmm. operating with the Navy Task Force doing amphibious operations. That's the first time we have, you know, combat troops down there. Uh, the Army also created a provisional brig, uh, division in Southern I-Corps by taking several brigades and lopping them together. So now the Army's pretty much everywhere. Mm. So we're reaching point of peak intensity. The enemy leaders in Hanoi know this. Our strength is moving towards 500,000 American troops, Right. The communists are beginning to lose some ground. They're beginning to lose control over some of the countryside. And so they make a decision, let's strike a blow to win back momentum. But we know we can't strike the Americans because they're too powerful. What do we do? So they make a decision, we are going to try to basically do a surgical strike against the South Vietnamese government. They see that Mm -hmm. as the weak element. Mm -hmm. So the plan they come up with is basically this. Um, At the New Year's of 1968, um, they're going to send the best forces they have, VC and NVA, to attack hundreds of South Vietnamese cities simultaneously, including Saigon. And you you mentioned their New Year. They call that Tet. They call that Tet because um, in in Asia, they observe a lunar New Year cycle. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's a solar cycle. It's always one January. Right. But on a lunar cycle, it depends on the year. And this year, the Tet celebration, the holiday, um, falls right at the end of January 1968. Yeah. Was it 30 January, I think? 30, 31 January. Yeah. And the reason the communists chose that as their attack date is Tet is a the biggest holiday mm-hmm. in, in Vietnam. It's It's a holiday for being with family and a lot of South Vietnamese soldiers were going were gonna to be on leave. Oh, wow. So this is the time you strike when, you know, their enemy is the weakest. So that's, that's the general plan. So while these communist soldiers um, pour into the cities, the second part of it that they think is happening is a general uprising, right? Their agents in the cities are going to mobilize the masses who they think, you know, hate the South Vietnamese government the point of all this is if everything goes according to plan in a matter of days or weeks, the South Union's government could collapse. And then the communists say, look, we'll take it from here. Oh, wow. We'll form a coalition yeah. government. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank America, but don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. This is the Tet Offensive plan that the communists come up with. And then so that now let's talk about what – really is one of the most yeah. well-known and largest campaigns of the war. Yeah. The Tet Offensive. So talk us through that. What? Um, so we understand what their plan was, right. what they're, they were going to target. Generally, right. So what happened? So the question, of course, is what did the Allies know? You know, What did the Americans know? How much did they know about this ahead of time? Because this was months and months and months in preparation. 
So the, the answer, the short answer is we knew some things, but we never quite pieced the whole thing mm. together, mm-hmm. um, partly because if on the face of it, it seems insane, <laughs> right? The communists had spent the f- past several years avoiding costly battles where they couldn't control their own casualties. Yeah. So the idea that they're going to suddenly charge into the cities and expose themselves just seemed nuts. And the idea that the people are going to rise up, that didn't track. So a lot of American um, officers who tracked intelligence or were seeing some signs of something, they're like, yeah, that can't be it, though, because that, that's, that's, mm. that's, that doesn't make any sense. Wow. So in some places, the signs were stronger. Uh, up near the DMZ, it seemed more likely the uh, North Vietnamese laid siege to this Marine base called Quezon, mm-hmm. um, a couple other places in the highlands. But the bottom line is American intelligence just didn't piece the whole thing together. Mm. And the other big reason is this. In order to secu- to make this secret, most of the communists didn't know this was coming. Oh, wow. So only a few senior leaders in Hanoi and at the different um, front commands in the South actually knew the plan. The average rank-and-file communist soldier had no idea this was coming until like 24 hours ahead of time. So that's when they were told, oh, by the way, we are now going to you know, attack this. And it, half the time, they didn't even know the city that they were entering. Oh, interesting. So it, oh. it created a lot of operational secrecy, but it also created chaos mm-hmm. when this thing happened. And, and uh, for, for, the, for, the, for, for the communists. The communists, right. Oh, right. And, 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 and this is probably, I think, one of the funniest stories. Oh, it, it isn't funny in retrospect, but... There was so much secrecy, in fact, that when Hanoi actually sent the orders saying when this thing was going to happen, uh, they were a little vague. They said mm-hmm. it's going to happen between the first and second nights of Tet. Mm. And it was only like a day later, like, like, like 36 hours before the attack began, they realized, oh my gosh, they're using a different calendar in South Vietnam. It was one day off. Oh, so wow. when they said first and second days of Tet, the people in the South thought, oh, that meant the night of 2930, mm. not 30-31. So oh, they had to send, like, no, 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 we actually mean but So this is why in some parts of South Vietnam, some of the enemy troops attack one day early. Oh. And this actually gives the Allies some valuable advance warning. Mm-hmm. So when the big attack happens, 30-31 January across the country, um, the Allies are able to... To make some adjustments, um, but it is a, a firestorm. I mean, it, it hits all the major cities in in in, in South Vietnam. Well, they hit the U.S. embassy too. Didn't hit the they? U.S. embassy. Although, funny, you know, of all the targets, there were ten targets in Saigon mm-hmm. that the Viet Cong really wanted commandos wanted to attack. They added the U.S. embassy just a few days. Before the attack, it almost as an afterthought, right? Because you said that the plan the was plan really... was to take out the South Vietnamese, right? Not to no. I mean, the Americans. I mean, look, they were happy to embarrass us, mm-hmm. but the reason they added it um, was because they thought it it would. They didn't actually think that they were going to take over the embassy. What they were going to do is take the grounds of the embassy, like the mm-hmm. the, the actual park outside the building. 
and then have a bunch of students from the university come stage a sit down strike. So this was just part of the idea of of, of creating sort of a public relations mm-hmm. um, uh, impression that right. it was a popular uprising. Now it didn't happen that way, but that was the idea. Right, and was this mostly Viet Cong or was the North Vietnamese army involved? This, um, for the Tet Offensive, it was half and half. Um, of the 84,000 communist soldiers in the initial wave, about half were North Vietnamese and about half were Viet Cong. Okay. So, yeah. So then how did the U.S. Army respond to this? So, again, you know, in, in the opening hours, lots of confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, some U.S. commanders had taken preparation because they thought, look, I've seen enough intelligence to think something's going to happen. In other cases, um, came as a surprise. Um, but basically, within a few hours, uh, the Americans, you know, mobilized their for- forces, coordinated with the South Vietnamese, and began counterattacking. So within 24 hours, it went from, you know, oh my gosh, this is the Alamo to, okay, Roger. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, this is bad, but, you know, we are now on the... On, mm-hmm. on the on the attack, and so that's generally the situation throughout most of the country. In the first few days, the Allies retake all the cities that the communists have penetrated. The exception being the city of White, mm-hmm. and that's up north, is up it? north yeah. in Icor. It's the third largest city in uh, South Vietnam. It was the uh, old home of the uh, Nguyen emperors in the 19th century. It's this massive stone uh, fortress. And uh, the uh, several North Vietnamese uh, battalions got inside that fortress and took over most of it. Oh, wow. And so that battle went on for about a month. And was that with the army or— Army, uh, Marines, the Marines, uh, U.S. Marines— uh, did most of the fighting in the city, mm-hmm. the southern part of the city, and then in the citadel, along with the South Vietnamese, whereas the army and the 1st Cavalry Division, or part of it, fought this battle off to the off to the west to try to cut the supply line that oh. the enemy was using into the mountains. Mm-hmm. So there was this whole other battle going on that isn't as well known, but was incredibly fierce, and, and like Ronnie Joe Hooper from the one who first receives the Medal of Honor for his heroics at a place called Tan Lachu. And then at the same time, what was going on at Quezon? So Quezon actually was one of the very few quiet places on on the first day of Tet. Hmm. Uh, turns and where out, is that located? And it is in the northwestern corner of Quang Thi province. So if you think of where South Vietnam meets North Vietnam, and that corner over by Laos, mm-hmm. it's... It's up in that corner. So oh, wow. It's a very remote location. Mm-hmm. Um, there are about 6,000 Marines there and some South Vietnamese, and they were surrounded by two NVA divisions. So for a while, it, you know, it, it, it was uh, looking... Um, it, it was concerning, let us mm-hmm. say, to right. President Johnson, um, to the point where, um, in fact, General Westmoreland even just very quietly did a little study on the use of nuclear weapons. Oh, wow. uh, I mean, he, I don't think he ever thought they mm-hmm. would be needed, but he thought, you know, due diligence. Um, of course, there everyone is thinking about Dien Bien Phu, mm-hmm. right? right? Where the French right. got defeated in 1954. Is this another one? Well, no, it wasn't mm-hmm. because the Americans had all these advantages. But on the day of Ted, it's actually quiet 
because an American bomber had had knocked out the uh, NVA command post la- a week earlier. Oh. We didn't know at the time. Yeah, but that was but but on the seventh of February, a for the first time in the war, um, North Vietnamese light tanks overran the Langvi Special Forces camp. Oh, which wow. was just south of Quezon. Hmm. So this is the first time that they they're, they're actually using Soviet designed light tanks. Um, so they 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 take over Long Bay, but they never do take Quezon. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, once Tet settles down, First uh, Cavalry Division uh, lifts helps lift the siege with Operation Pegasus because they're in Way. They're and up so in they, Icorp. Yep. After Way is over, yep. they move over to help. Right. Marines at right. And, and and West Merlin deliberately wanted the first cavalry division up in I Corps mm. because he had plans for them to do all I mean to, to really just roam around and and, and you know knock the uh, North Vietnamese mm-hmm. in, you know wherever they could find him. In fact, he had a secret plan called El Paso where he planned to take the first cavalry division and launch it into Laos mm-hmm. in the later summer of 68 to cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Oh. So, I mean, that this was right. part of his thinking. Mm-hmm. He never got permission, but that's why the um, first cab was there. And um, so uh, how long before Quezon was? Uh, well, the, the, the you know, um, in April of 68, basically, early mm-hmm. April 68, Pegasus um, effectively lifts, lifts the siege. Now, again, the Marines were there, you know, see it a little differently. Yeah. They're like, look, you know. Yeah. We could have held out forever, and I think mm. they're probably right. But the fact is, um, drove off a lot of the North Vietnamese mm-hmm. who were in the surrounding hills. Ultimately, uh, Americans end up basically abandoning Quezon a few months later uh, because it, it no longer serves the purpose for for oh. which we had it. That was going to be the jump-off point for that invasion of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Oh, okay. Right, right. and when the raid okay. season comes, mm-hmm. it's like, eh, we do go back there later, but that's why... We live the siege and then end up leaving. Right. So I, I, what I want to talk about then is is the the perception. Yeah. All right. So would it sounds like you would define uh, the Tet Offensive as a it, was it a tactical, a strategic uh, success for the United States, a failure for the communists? How how would you describe? Yeah. It? There's there's is certainly. And arguments to be made on both sides. But um, in a nutshell, I would say, you know, from a tactical operational point of view, uh, the Tet Offensive absolutely was a defeat for the communists. Uh, Of the 120 some odd thousand they committed during the whole thing, as many as 40,000 were killed or incapacitated. So they took enormous losses. And the VC, I mean... And as a part of that. They were... No, I, I've read in different places that the VC was was basically um, destroyed as an effective. Yeah, actually, group. I mean, and, and that's yeah, that that's 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 a misperception. Mm-hmm. Um, there were certain VC units that were certainly pulverized mm-hmm. uh, during Tet, but in every single one of those cases, they're reconstituted. Like mm. there's there's a there's a battalion that gets almost totally annihilated in Tet. Reconstituted comes back and and invades Saigon in May. Oh, so oh, I mean, you yeah. know, so mm-hmm. so the fact is, uh, the VC still remain an absolutely potent force. It's really other factors that are going on that explains that. But yeah, it was a pretty much balanced NVA VC losses. Mm-hmm. 
but in in some ways, then the it's it's a tactical advantage uh, for the United right. States at the end of this. But but having had, said that, right. So the media, right, um, was there reporting on this. Yeah, and so it completely changes perception in the United States. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's yeah, the, yeah, that's certainly an argument that is often made. Okay, and this is how I would put it. It's a different tack. President Johnson in later 67, right, is, is, is telling the American people we're making progress in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We've been fighting for a couple of years. We're, we are actually seeing gains. And so he's setting the public up to expect more success, mm-hmm. right? So when Tet happens and it takes the American public by surprise— right. Um, of course, just like first, it took the military, like uh, to some extent, <laughs> yeah. military surprise. Of course, the first right is like, what the heck is going on here? You know, mm-hmm. you images of dead sappers in the U.S. embassy yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, cities on fire. But if you actually like look at public opinion um, in those first few weeks after Tet, support for the president, and the war actually goes up, mm. not down. Okay, you don't turn against. People rally around the flag, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, they may right. be confused, no, point. Right. right? But they actually rally around the flag. Um, it isn't until five, six weeks later that the sort of you know public opinion starts dipping again. Mm. Part of the reason is um, after things settle down, it's clear you know that it's been defeated. Uh, General Westmoreland reintroduces an idea uh, that he had pitched a year earlier. He said, you know, really to get this thing done. We may need to call up another two hundred thousand wow. troops. Now, again, it wasn't just his idea. He mm-hmm. was his superiors were kind of whispering in his ear, saying, "Look, our cupboards are almost bare." But politically, that issue, right? Because right. to do that, you'd have to mobilize reserves, the National mm-hmm. Guard. The anti-war movement was already uh, very active, and so mm-hmm. what happens is it's not it's not that the media gave a wrong impression of Ted. It's not the media turned the public against it. I think looking at all the coverage, the media is pretty pretty down the middle. Mm. But the fact is, and this is where I uh, um, refer back to Walter Cronkite. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the, the, the great CBS uh, news anchor. Right. Uh, this is a guy who flew B-17 missions in World War II. Mm. I mean, not a wallflower, not a pacifist. Right. So when he goes on um, in late February and gives a short little editorial, you know, what he basically says is, um, you know, and he was there and he went away and, mm-hmm. and saw it for himself. He said, look, uh, I think it's unrealistic to say that America is, is, is near defeat. It's not true. You know, we, we, we aren't, are nowhere near defeat. We, we can keep fighting this war, you know, as, as long as we feel like it. However, I also don't see how we can bring the war to a successful conclusion in mm. any reasonable time or cost. And so mm-hmm. he says, basically, what I see is a stalemate. I think he was exactly right. I think that's the key, right. is the shock of Tet seeing that this war was not on its downward slope. Mm-hmm. That's when a lot of people said, right. okay, you know, how long will this need to go on? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, so— we need to pivot from Ted because mm-hmm. really immediately after that, or still while some of yep. that was going on, another dark day yep. uh, 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 took place in uh, Army history, and um, you know we know that as the My Lai massacre. Right. 
Right. So uh, March 16th, 1968. Um, so... If you can just right. describe so what happened this is, that day. In, in, in a lot of ways, this is this is a, this is an outgrowth of Tet. Okay, one of the big priorities in '67 was helping the South Vietnamese with this thing called pacification, which was basically to root out all these Viet Cong agents in the villages to get the people to support the government. Southern I Corps um, was one of the hardest places to do this because the Viet Cong support went back decades. Okay, so this, this one province, Quang Nai province, right? You had this a new American division called the Americal, or the 23rd, um, and one, uh, several of its battalions went on this special operation in March. Their purpose was just to sort of win back territory that had been lost during Tet. What happens, unfortunately, is that some of those American troops... Um, particularly ones by, led by uh, Captain Medina and Lieutenant Cali, go into this one of several villages known as Milai and basically begin massacring the civilians, in some cases sexually assaulting them, um, desecrating bodies. I mean, it's, 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 it's awful. There's no way around right. it. A loss of mm-hmm. morale, discipline, um, gets out of definitely control. breakdown in leadership. Breakdown there. in leadership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now again, not everybody in the miracle in that area was doing it, but there mm-hmm. were certain platoons and um, one or two companies where this was happening. Um, now there there were a few shining heroes of the moment. You know, uh, Hugh Thompson, for example, was a, a helicopter pilot flying overhead. Um, with with uh, he had two people in his helicopter. He f- flying over, he saw. American soldiers no. doing this. He landed his helicopter, got out with the forty-five, and aimed it at. He said, "You will stop." Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. So he was obviously disturbed. He went back home, reported it. Some other people did. The offshoot is there was an investigation done by the division on what happened, and it was kind of a whitewash. Mm. Uh, they basically said, "Well, yeah." A lot of those people were like, probably killed by artillery, or it could have been this, could have been that. So this initial investigation kind of got, you know. Mm-hmm. So for the rest of '68 and well into '69, the American public does not know about this. Wow. Yeah. But people who are there are still talking about it. Okay. So, and this is something we will be dealing with in the mm-hmm. next episode. Yeah. The fallout, but this does mm-hmm. happen on the heels of Tet. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, and the the lessons learned from this, and I, I, I think we'll address in the next episode. Right. Um, but there are some very positive after effects. Right. I, I, I mean, it is it is for, absolutely for one of the blackest on. episodes in right. army history. No question. Yeah. No. No. Mm-hmm. You know, dodging that at all. No. But. Um, and we have to acknowledge that. You we know, have to acknowledge it absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in the longer run. The lessons that the army did learn from it and applied mm-hmm. have, I think, served us well in the years since. Again, and this is not to take away from any of the anguish of the Vietnamese or or any of that. It's just to say that you know we have to look it square in the face mm-hmm. and and understand why it happened and make sure it it, it right. never does again. But and as a a, a professional institution, right. which the United States Army is. Um, you know, 
something as terrible as this happens and uh, we make changes. Right. That uh, f- from that time period on that um, ethics training, um, I think you talked about earlier, uh, rules, rules of engagement. Oh yeah. Rules you know, of engagement. All, all of these things. Uh, um, embedding uh, 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 JAGs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, advocate generals at, 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 right. at multiple echelons mm-hmm. so that you have, Someone looking over the commander's shoulder, making sure that everything is, mm-hmm. is, is looking right. I mean, this is the army we have now, and it's because of Eli. Yeah. Yeah, and grow um, well, great. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll thank you for those insights. Uh, Eric, is there anything else about 1968 that you want to uh, wrap up with? Well, I would just say that, uh, you know, after, uh, again, Tet Offensive and all this uh, uh, confusion and, 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 and uh, you know, questioning— um, you know, in the next six months, you know, there's some changes. President Johnson, you know, announces on TV that he will not want, run for re-election. He's going to devote himself to trying to bring peace. He'd actually made the decision not to run months earlier, but he announces it there. Um, General Westmoreland uh, becomes Army Chief of Staff and gives way to his deputy, um, Creighton Abrams. When when is that? When does he take over? Oh, effectively, May June okay. sixty eight. Mm-hmm. So Abrams, who who got there in April sixty seven, to work with the South Vietnamese, he becomes a new MACV commander. Um, the communists launch a second general offensive in May and June. Not as big as Tet. Tet? Is sometimes all mini Tet, mm-hmm. although pretty devastating in Saigon, mm-hmm. and they launch a third one. In August and September, so the takeaway there is the leaders in Hanoi are still dedicated. They didn't get the result they wanted. Right. It wasn't a knockout blow, but on the whole, they again these are professional revolutionaries, ideologically committed to this. They want to sort of keep the pain going, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. so this is this p- period is the most intense period. Of the war, and in fact, the first week of the Tet Offensive is the highest number of American combat fatalities in the entire Cold War. That is the hottest point of the Cold War. And when you mentioned keeping the pain going, they fully understand the communists. That oh is, yeah, um, the perception. Yeah, and, sure. And and taking the war, if you will, to the American people. Right. I mean, and, the American uh, American public opinion was never a first priority in their thinking. Again. They always had that as a component, mm-hmm. um, but they were always looking for ways to generate leverage on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And as 68 wears on, um, what they're mostly trying to do is, is, is trying to create sort of a fracture point more and more between the Americans and the South Vietnamese mm. because they're... they're Everyone involved is beginning to understand this war cannot be won decisively. Mm. It has to be won at the negotiating table. So that is the other big development. In the summer of 68, both sides agreed to begin peace talks. Now, they don't actually begin in earnest, Mm -hmm. but they say we'll meet in Paris Mm -hmm. And we will start to. So that's the beginning of the Paris peace talks. Yeah, so. and so okay. and so this is where the, there there's a a, a a shift in the war, and so the fighting now becomes a part of diplomacy. All right, well, um, uh, Eric, before we close, it's time again for our segment called Hua Trivia. 
What trivia? So this piece of significant army trivia that we're hoping we will wow the audience. So oh, there, yeah, yeah. No, is, no, no pressure there, yeah, right? Is there some piece of army trivia, uh, HUA trivia, that you can share in this stage of the Vietnam War? Well, um, again, you know, Tet Offensive is, of course, you know, uh, one of my, you know, uh, fav- favorite topics. Um, but I got to say... Um, I'm going to pivot a little on this and, and mention a, something that we didn't really talk about uh, in our discussion, the Battle of Dacto. This is in the Central Highlands in November 67, um, and we, we've talked about the 173rd Airborne, right? Mm-hmm. This, this very famous fight, um, Hill 875, where the 173rd is attacking up the cell day mm-hmm. after day against entrenched positions, and at one point, they're surrounded, calling air support, and a Marine A-4 drops two bombs. One of it lands right in the middle of the American perimeter. And and one of the Medal of Honor winners is the chaplain, mm. right, Rodgers, who is, who is there with the soldiers. Mm. And so uh, I just kind of want to, you know, uh, you know, you and I went to, to, to ja- uh, Fort Jackson, like inside the chaplain school, and just to acknowledge that, you know, it isn't just the trigger pullers. I mean, oh, it's no. the chaplains and, and right. the other folks who are who are out there, too, and the photographers. And Yeah, I mean, in these kinds of wars, there's no real front lines. No, you know, every, no. You know, everyone is. So a tip of the hat to to the chaplains and yeah. um, and to the battle dacto, too, which uh, yeah. is important. Yeah. All right, uh, Eric, well, thanks uh, so much. Uh, I appreciate your insights again and discussion today about uh, 1967, 1968. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Vietnam War or Army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil, where you can access all of our publications about Vietnam. They're available as free PDF downloads, or you can purchase them from the government publishing office. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions about Army history as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, tactics, and lots of HUA trivia. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.com.